Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Youth Perspective. This podcast is brought to you by Cal Youth and Ifri. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we will talk about populism and strong leaders. My name is Amanda Kanaj and I'm the president of International Federation Liberal Youth and I'm the host of today's episode. Today's episode is titled You, Me, the Presidency. And with us in the conversation, we have a special guest, uh, Lissandro Claudio, uh, also called Lelo Claudio. Lelo Claudio is an assistant professor of University of California, Berkeley, and an intellectual and cultural historian of the Philippines with a broad interest in the history of global liberal thought. His book, Liberalism and the Post-Colonial, uh, Thinking the State in the 20th Century Philippines, and short book, Joe's Rizal, Liberalism and the Paradox Coloniality, uh, received a lot of critical acclaim, and he's currently working on a book tentatively titled Empire of Austria, uh, Austerity, uh, the American Progressive Area and the Formation of Philippine Economic Thoughts uh, between 1902 to 1986. It's very nice to have you with us today, Leloy. Welcome. Thank you, Amanda. Glad to be here. Great. Um, like I mentioned before, today's talk will focus on the questions regarding dictatorship and strongman leaders and what makes them thrive and also populism, why populist agendas work. We're going to talk about the different strategies and the historical rise of populist regimes around the regions and how their long-term effect could dominate the political landscape in years to come and also looking into the future, what, we, what can be done uh, with this. Uh, and I'm thinking we can head straight into the topic of dictatorship and I will start off with a very simple question in order to get into the topic. Um, what, in your view, Lelo, makes a dictator and what makes a strongman leader? Well, actually, you can think about it as the opposite of liberalism because liberalism is the political philosophy that ensures checks on power. And those checks on power are usually operationalized through rights. Right? You have a right to freedom of assembly. You have a right to free speech. The state cannot curtail that. When the state starts curtailing those particular rights in favor of a centralized authority, then you get a kind of dictatorship. And that's you know, what's happening in the Philippines, for example. Uh, Rodrigo Duterte just shut down, well, not just shut down, but he, he's shutting down um, critical media like ABS-CBN, for example. I mean, that's also happening in places like China. That's been happening for a long time in China, and it's been happening for a long time in Russia as well. Um, so, I think it's it's relatively easy to define dictatorship. There are the other thorn, the thornier terms for me are like fascism, for instance. Like that's a bit more difficult to define. But but dictatorship, I think, is a bit straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's good to everyone get a clear idea of what we're talking about. And when it comes to then dictators and strong and strongman leaders. Um, what is it with them that thrives? What is it that makes them uh, successful um, in, in these countries that you just mentioned, uh, for example, Philippines, Russia? Why, why does it work for them? I think that's a question that needs to be answered relative to the historical epoch and then, of course, relative to the specific place. I don't think you can provide a general answer to that, but we can outline certain attributes of strongmen that appeal to people. One thing, and this is particularly again salient in the case of this, the Philippines, this idea that, that dictatorships create change fast because 
the normal system, which has a lot of check and balance, checks and balances, a lot of people perceive that as slow, right? You need to go through a long process before you're able to change, uh, achieve change. And that's why, you know, um, when Duterte ran on, ran on what I think was an explicitly dictatorial platform, what appealed to people was his tagline of change is coming. Um, and the perception at that time was that you couldn't get change unless you had a strong leader. And by strong leader, you meant someone who would cent centralize power for himself, right? So dictatorships usually emerge when there is a kind of um, erosion of trust in the liberal democratic system. Um, that could be, for example, you know, in Germany, Hitler emerged because there was a disillusionment with Weimar Germany, right? In, 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 uh, in Russia, for example, uh, Putin emerged because there was a disillusionment with the kind of economic liberalization and quick political liberalization that occurred after the fall of the Soviet Union. So they come during periods of heavy disillusionment, I think. That's, that's one thing that can be said. Mm -hmm. No, I completely um, agree with you on that point, because especially if you look at uh, Europe, for example, after the economic and social crisis um, and the financial crash in 2018, that kind of also brought this kind of emergence of, of new uh, type of rhetorics and populists that kind of paid way of even more um, stronger leaders even in Europe. So I think it's a very interesting point you bring up. And, and on that point, kind of if we're looking at the society now, um, it's also very much said, like you also mentioned, that authoritarian leaders thrive on crises and kind of on when people want change. Um, if we look at society to not today, do you think uh, after the pandemic and crises and these emerging, do you think there will be even a greater hold and grip on countries from dictators and strongman leaders as the world has been going through this great crisis at this time? That is the big question there, right? But I'm a historian, so I can kind of sidestep questions like that by saying, you know, there's nothing in history that will allow us to predict what happens after this crisis, that you have some evidence. Um, but if you look at what's happening right now, there are good signs and there are bad signs. For example, in Brazil, Bolsonaro, who is an authoritarian figure, botched pandemic relief, and his numbers are dropping. Um, and then conversely, you have people like Jacinda Ardern, who's not an authoritarian and she did a very good job in New Zealand and her numbers are up. And as a result of that, she's able to push for more progressive legislation because her response to the crisis has created a mandate. Um, but then you also have, you know, people like Rodrigo Duterte, who, to my mind, botched not just um, the response to the pandemic, but the response to the concomitant economic crisis. And he has a popularity of 97%. So we're not entirely sure. I mean, the world we're living in is unpredictable and it's hard to mine history for events that will allow us to predict what happens now because nothing like this is, you know, history doesn't really repeat itself, right? Um, this is a completely different conjuncture from the conjunctures we've had in the past. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, it's very interesting. And something um, these people, some of the people you mentioned, for example, Bolsonaro has in common is that their tool kind of to get to their position has been uh, very much through populism. Um, and populism is something we've seen on the rise recently uh, all over the world, not only in Asia, also in Europe, and uh, even in countries where we see, um, where we thought they were very, very stable democracies, 
uh, populism has kind of paved the way for um, strong men to get into power in even liberal democracies. Um, and I'm kind of thinking from your kind of historian perspective, why do you think these populist agendas work um, and continue to work? Well, there are multiple answers, but let me just home in on one factor, which is the media. I mean, I don't think electorates are used to media, the media landscape being saturated by this amount of misinformation and disinformation, right? And that's because it's only now that we're really grappling with the effects of whatever the internet and social media. And it's very similar to, you know, the 1930s when you had propaganda on both the left and the right using the new tool of radio. So Goebbels, for example, used it for the Nazis quite effectively, but for the totalitarian communists, Willemann Munzenberg used the radio as well. So he's a kind of the communist Goebbels. So, so it was so so it effectively aided the creation of what the historian Eric Hobsbawm called an age of extremes, because you had extremists on the right and extremists on the left, right, and very impassioned, and they both had this new outlet to promote their worldviews. And people didn't know how to deal with that. It took a couple of years before people were able to kind of approach this new media critically. And I think it might take, you know, a few decades before we're able to approach this new media critically. A lot of people, you know, they say, you know, so social, we should be used to social media by, by now, you know, especially if you're a millennial or, uh, or, or you're Gen Z, you're like, you know, we're used to it already. Um, but actually, look at your parents, look at your grandparents. They still don't know how to deal with this with this phenomenon. I mean, look at how credulous um, um, baby boomers are about the things they see on on the internet. And there is a reason why, for example, the QAnon movement explicitly targeted baby boomers to be the foundation of their movement, because there's a lot of credulity there as a result of the fact that these people are not used to this media, right? And, and therefore, it's very easy for them to trust whatever they see on the, on the screen. So it's going to take a, a couple of years for us to really figure out how to deal with this media and how to deal with it critically and how to regulate it, right? Because the regulations are really not robust yet. Yeah, and that's definitely a challenge for um, the liberal parties to kind of try to balance the way of like how to regulate it, but still keeping that freedom of speech. Uh, it's a big conflict there um, that's going to define us for a long time, I think, this conflict between freedom of speech and also being um, regulating this in order to kind of um, push down on these disinformation and all of these things on the on these new media platforms. It, it was um, not so long ago that liberals were left and right were celebrating the emergence of social media, especially during the period of Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring, for instance. So these were tools for social mobilization and tools for freedom of expression. And it's only now, you know, really from 2016 onwards, with the rise of essentially Putin-inspired disinformation, that we see that these are tools for authoritarian management. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But if we're thinking kind of on the other side of this, and if we're talking about like kind of the social discourse um, and how that put like, because I know you work a lot with culture history and culture historian and stuff like that. Um, if we look at the social discourse right now, uh, I do think it's very 
it has evolved very, very quickly uh, in the last years, very much in conjunction with how social media has emerged. Um, I'm talking about kind of the work culture and kind of uh, identity politics. Um, and a lot of populists kind of use that as being anti-establishment by using the woke culture to say that that is elitist and we're opposing to this. Do you think these things have a connection, identity culture, woke culture, and how the social discourse has been evolving uh, and also how populists have been able to use that in order to further their agenda. What are your thoughts on this? You see it everywhere in the United States, for example. My own institution, the University of California at Berkeley, is the target of the far right. They say, you know, it's a bastion of liberal woke culture. Um, and that's equivalent to how, say, populists for in India, for example, view Jawaharlal Nehru University and that's equivalent to how populists view the University of the Philippines and the Philippines as well, these bastions of out-of-touch elite liberal, woke liberal people. Now, you know, uh, there is a tinge of credibility to the critique in the sense that a lot of these institutions are do indeed separate themselves from everyday lives of people. There is a kind of elitism to academia that I acknowledge, and there are certain academic codes that are illegible to the rest of the world. So, you know, I think it's easy, for example, to talk about things like trigger warnings and safe, space in, safe spaces in academia, but outside academia, people don't really talk that way, right? Or even a lot of the habits in academia about language, people don't police language as rigidly outside academia. So there, so so the critique of the right part of that has validity, but of course they overblow it because it is refracted through social media and pro propaganda institutions like the Murdoch network, which is not just Fox News. I mean, the Mur Murdoch network is a global network of disinformation and propaganda really. And so for example, Nowadays in the United States, there's a there's a heavy critique of critical race theory, for example, which is overly simplified. Um, you can critique critical race theory, but the way it's being critiqued is that essentially is that essentially it's 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 the big bogeyman that is anti-American that will erode the values of society as a whole. And 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 when it gets to that point, it just stops to make sense. Um, what I do want to say about populist culture is something um, the political scientist Marcus Mietzner says about the case of Indonesia, which is that populist culture allows us to be more comfortable with what was taboo in the past. Um, and so things that couldn't have been said before, you can say now. And, and, and I think that's one of the defining characteristics of, uh, of um, populist culture. Um, and a lot of tab taboo really has to do with issues of respect for women, actually. So the, the taboo that is, that, that is being challenged by this culture is essentially the taboo of, um, of, of, being, of not being disrespectful towards you know, women. And it's the taboo of misogyny. This is particularly you know, prominent in the Philippines, right? Um, the Duterte phenomenon is a misogynist phenomenon. It's largely a misogynist phenomenon as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, definitely. And I completely agree with what you said, and especially when it comes to um, what you said about the vote culture and how 
um, that is used, uh, especially because because it comes becomes so easy for the populace to say um, that it is elitist when uh, we're talking about, for example, pronouns. Or they use that example, like why are we talking about pronouns? Why while um, these regular Americans are losing their jobs? So it becomes like a very easy rhetoric, like you said, very oversimplified. Um, yeah. So. Um, it is something that I think also as, as liberals, um, because liberalism is a part of this kind of woke culture in a lot of ways, um, has to be kind of think about. Um, but when we kind of establish that this is kind of happening now, how do you think the long-term effect of this kind of populist rhetoric in, in general and what we have talked about, like the wokeism and also um, what you mentioned in the media, do you think this their long-term effect will dominate the political landscape in years to come, um, what we're seeing now? No, again, um, predictions, something I'm not very good at. You know, I, 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 I should say, for example, that my record with respect to predictions is really, really terrible. In 2016, I said Rodrigo Duterte had no chance of winning the presidency. It was a complete dark horse, um, and, and I was proven very, very wrong. So um, after that, I just uh, stopped predicting. Um, so, But I think at this point, if you're looking at populism as a general phenomenon, I don't see what is going to repudiate it on a global level. Um, the fascism of the mid-20th century, that was repudiated by a war, by World War II. And so the way we got rid of it was essentially we beat Hitler, right? We beat the Japanese empire, we beat Mussolini, and then we, and then, you know, occupation troops came in and, you know, in certain cases, really re-educated people, you know, how are we, I don't see that happening, you know, are, are people going to come in, you know, uh, is an occupying force going to come in to save the Philippines and then re-educate people and tell them that, you know, it's, you shouldn't support someone who murders thousands and thousands of alleged drug users. Are people going to come in, um, in Thailand? To, and, and say, you know, we re-educate you. After we re-educate you, you know, you cannot believe in less majesty anymore, right? You cannot be like an authoritarian royalist anymore. I mean, that that doesn't work. That's not going to happen. So what reckoning will, you know, what reckoning will happen? I, I don't, you know, I don't see it happening anytime soon, right? And I'm not advocating for war. So I don't know what kind of reckoning will happen. Yeah. But but why do you think, um, it kind of goes back to a little thing we talked about before, why do you think these populist parties were so successful in the elections? I mean, we have the media and all of this, but do you think there's something deeper from a historical perspective that led us to this point? Um, many, like you, you mentioned the crisis. I think the economic crisis is one example. I think the other example is really the, the growing power of authoritarian um, centers of authoritarianism. And here I'm talking about China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, for example. So there is a kind of authoritarian populist international now, and it, they're becoming very assertive. So it, 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 it is about the geostrategic alignment of the world as well, right, with, with an assertive China. And China is, of course, supporting governments that are authoritarian as well, and, and so is Russia, right? Um, it also largely has to do with, you know, um, 
kind of uneven democratizations that have happened in the 90s and the 2000s and, and even in the 2010s. So you look at, for example, the kind of bumpy road towards democratization that happened in Myanmar, right? They were becoming democratic, but at the same time, they were murdering Rohingya, right? And so it was, it, 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 it's a society that, in a sense, does not escape crisis and, and now has re-entered, has just, actually, this, this coup is just a continuation of a crisis that never really abetted. No, definitely. So that that has really led to um, what you like what you're referring to that in recent years domestic politics at least in Europe have become arguably less predictable uh, and that's why I understand why it's hard for you to predict because it's become more prone to sudden and ex- unexpected changes that even all the political scientists didn't predict uh, look at um, Brexit um, look at um, the first um, or if you look at um, the US uh, no not a lot of people expected Donald Trump to win when he did against Hillary Clinton. So it's very become a lot less predictable, uh, which is hard for us as liberals and as politicians to to navigate. Um, So so I definitely understand what you mean with that. Um, But if we're talking about different continents, if we're comparing Asia to other continents in regards to Asian possibilism, do you think there's anything unique um, about that in comparison um, and in which other aspect does it come closer uh, to the populist discourse articulated in, in other regions? Do you see any differences? So uh, if you have any uh, insight also in Europe, I think it's also interesting to compare. I know you're in the US, so. Well, I think what's really driving a lot of global authoritarianism, if not populism, is the power of authoritarian China, of communist China. Mm-hmm. Um, and the CCP is an institution that is that represents all of the tendencies that we dislike as liberals. I mean, just look at what they're doing in Xinjiang province, for example. They're running veritable concentration camps there, right? There's a mm-hmm. terrific article yeah. in the New Yorker just two weeks uh, two weeks ago, I think, about that or a month ago. Um, and what's unique about Asia is that we are becoming. China's backyard. I mean, this is particularly pronounced for the Philippines, right? Why is Rodrigo Duterte so powerful? It's because largely he thinks China has his back, right? Um, And there was a takedown, for example, of pro-Duterte Facebook accounts a couple of months ago. And the reason why it was taken down was is that these accounts were funded by the Chinese government. So that's your first very clear evidence that there is a link between the kind of propaganda machinery of Duterte and the Chinese government. So what's unique about Asia is that we are we are we are the back we we are essentially the backyard of the biggest threat to global democracy, which is authoritarian China. I think, um, and yeah. of course you see that in disputes about the the South China Sea, right? It's not just the Philippines; it's Vietnam that has to deal with this, right? And mm-hmm. and nobody really knows how to deal with this emerging authoritarian power that is becoming more authoritarian every day, right? They just have a leader for life in Xi Jinping, for example. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, definitely. And I think what's also scary from kind of liberal standpoint with the rise of China is that it kind of poses a systematic questions about the West future um, by kind of bringing to the forefront that 
democracy is not a requirement for economic success, which has been something we've been saying for a long time. But then China comes and has this completely different method and is kind of ruthless in their or very ruthless in their methods, which and is this great economic and political power um, in the world. And this kind of to from the Europeans' perspective and the West perspective becomes a very a question we have to really talk more about and how we were going to deal with this because it, it is very hard and it's something that's very new um, in that sense. So I think it's uh, very interesting that you bring that up as like a factor in the Asian populism. Yeah, uh, and this is effectively a continuation of the Cold War, if you think about it. And one of the things about, one of the key aspects of the Cold War is, is the, was the discussion of models, right? The model of a democratic system as opposed to the model of a Soviet system. And then to a lesser degree, the model of a third way um, that was coming out of, say, uh, the non-aligned movement. Um, and nowadays that, that debate is alive again and the Chinese are essentially promoting their model of development as an alternative to Western liberal democracy. And that is particularly dangerous in the context of Asia because that is appealing to Asians, right? Um, if they say that this is the Asian way of development, then Asians say, oh, okay, fine. Like, this might be our way. We might not have to be tied to the models of the West. And that's why I think it's important for liberals to talk about liberalism as an Asian form of thought as well. Um, not just to say that you know liberalism is Western, you also have to argue that liberalism is something that has been actively constructed and redefined in the context of Asia and that we can speak of Asian liberalisms, even as we acknowledge that liberalism historically has had a lot, has, has placed a lot of its, its roots in the West. Mm. Definitely, yeah. I think there are two steps here. The first step is to acknowledge that Asians have participated in the history of liberalism. But I think the more radical step is to say it doesn't matter where, where an idea comes from. It could come from the West. It could come from Greece. It could come from China. It could come from the Philippines. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea, right? Um, and that yeah. is the an antidote, I think, to a kind of almost xenophobic approach to political philosophy where you say if it's not ours then it doesn't matter to us i mean that's an absurd position i mean think about think about science for example nobody asks when they're studying the dna nobody asks for example if the the helix structure was discovered in cambridge they're like oh it's and and, and then they claim oh the dna is western right no they're like the helix structure of the dna makes sense therefore we'll use it uh, i'm not saying that science and political philosophy are are completely analogous, but I think that kind of attitude would be warranted in places like the Philippines. You say, I, I not entirely sure. A lot of liberalism came from the West. So what? It's a good idea, and it's a good yeah. universal idea because it is, it's it's a it's an idea that's tied to uh, the universal idea of freedom. Everybody wants a certain degree of freedom and autonomy. I think that is inherent, right? And uh, and a political philosophy that foregrounds that, I think automatically has universal appeal. So my favorite liberal thinker in the Philippines, Salvador P. Lopez, who was um, chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights in the 1960s, uh, and just a brilliant theorist of liberalism said, 
you know, liberalism is universal because tyranny is universal. Well, that's super interesting, especially when you're talking about the approach of it. I think this is something a lot of liberals need to take to heart because I think a lot of the time you kind of... Um, take this kind of, I don't want to use the word colonial, but kind of like colonial approach of how to bring, like kind of uh, bring in a sense liberalism to places instead of acknowledging that these people already, a lot of people already think this way. It's just like you have to show and like kind of show the support and also um, talk to each other about how the best way to put forward it in their countries are rather than kind of saying that we're bringing liberalism to you. We know how it is supposed to be. This is how you should form your society. People already know what's the best for your society. And oftentimes they think in this liberal way, but just like we have to uh, work together in order to move forward. So I especially agree with you when you say that we as liberals have to learn that um, in a lot of way. You'd be surprised that about where you can find liberalism. You find it in the most unlikely places. So for example, last year there was a book called Liberalism and Democracy in Myanmar um, written by the political scientists David, uh, Roman David and Ian Holiday. And they make the argument that even in a place like Myanmar, which has a you know which has been conditioned by authoritarianism and authoritarian thinking for a very long time, that there are liberal sentiments that are bubbling just below the surface and that can be tapped. And you're seeing that actually being tapped now amidst these rallies against the junta, right? So you see it in, you see it everywhere uh, because the demand for freedom is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, if we kind of continue on this kind of path but bring it about a little bit back to populism, there is um, suggested literature that says that populism is both corrective and a threat to liberal democracy. Can you kind of give your thoughts on this kind of theory or thought that um, some literature have? Yeah, I think I think that's right. It is uh, largely a corrective and you see this, I think, most pronounced in the U.S. Democratic Party. Right? I don't think, for example, that the U.S. Democratic Party would be this bold about social spending had the populist threat not emerged, right? Because the populist threat was, you know, one of the appeals of Donald Trump was, you know, this idea that certain places in the U.S. had been left behind, that the Rust Belt, for example, had been left behind, right? That the average person, that the working class had been left behind. And what you get now from Biden, for example, is this big infrastructure package that is unprecedented that we really haven't seen in the United States until the, since the era of um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And I think that's, that's very important. And the reason why it's a very important corrective is, is this. Um, the, the historian of Europe, Tony Jott, once said that he said that liberalism can only survive essentially with social democracy. Why? because it is social democracy that binds people to liberal institutions. And I'll concretize this. If you're an average Juan de la Cruz, which is the average Joe in the Philippines, if you're the average Juan de la Cruz, under what conditions will you trust your government? Won't you trust your government more and the liberal institutions that your government is upholding if it is that same liberal institution that provides you, say, with housing, with healthcare, right? 
And so the kind of what I call what, what people have called neoliberalism is actually an anathema to liberalism because it doesn't bind people to liberal institutions and they feel no affection towards those institutions. So so it it does lead to ruin. And we know that because you know neoliberalism run roughshod over many liberal democracies over the during the course of the 1990s and people are essentially disillusioned with it. You know, who was the symbol of that say in the United States? Um, Bill Clinton, right? And to a lesser degree, of course, Hillary Clinton. And I think that's one of the reasons, apart from misogyny, why Hillary Clinton didn't win. And if you look at Biden um, and the new generation Democrats, it's now impossible for them to go back to that. And I think that's the challenge for a lot of liberal, uh, a lot of liberal parties um, across the world. So I think you know the Philippine Liberal Party, for example, one of its challenges is to correct for its mistakes before. Um, so it's very clear that Filipinos are disillusioned with, say, the Liberal Party of the Aquino years um, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. As much as, you know, I actually admire President Aquino, but I think I think there needs to be an adjustment that acknowledges that disillusionment. I don't know what form that would take, but the Liberal Party in the Philippines cannot exist in the way that it existed before. It just has to be a different animal, the same way the Democratic Party in the U.S. is 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 a is a different animal from it was from from the way it was before. So uh, that's how it works. That's how populism works as a corrective. In terms of challenge, uh, it's very clear that it's a challenge because it's an electoral challenge. You know, it, um, populist or authoritarian movements can wipe out liberals. You know, electorally, that's what happened in the Philippines, for example, in the midterm election. Um, the opposition did not get any seats in the senatorial election, in the midterm senatorial election in the Philippines, right? Um, the threat is that they could kill democracy, right? The Philippines, it's happening right now. You know, they want to elect Sara Duterte president and make Rodrigo Duterte uh, his vice president, which effectively means he could still be president, right? That's that's killing uh, democratic transition in the Philippines. And so it's a very clear-cut threat. I mean, in the United States, you also have kind of voter suppression coming from the Republican Party. So um, populist authoritarianism, whatever you, 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 you want to call it, is a threat to liberals because it could erode the system that liberals mm-hmm. hold dear. No, definitely. It's super interesting what you're saying, because this is something I think liberals really need to consider because we've kind of moved from when democracy and liberalism was seen as kind of the very interconnected and populism are kind of taking over and used our own tool against us by by taking over democracy and using democracy in their own favor. And um, especially, like you said, when institutions and the people no longer come in line and when the, people don't see the institutions as representing them anymore, see them as legitimate, of course, um, it's not unsurprising that we have this kind of resurgence of populism um, because the tool of democracy um, is very favorable to populists and liberal liberals if I kind of ends up in this way where we um, really favor democracy, but at the same time, it's a tool that the populace can use very easily, but we also very favor it. So it's, it becomes a challenge that we really need to look at in the future. There is, you know, liberals actually also favor expertise and knowledge and yeah. bureaucracy. Yeah. And sometimes the people who are experts are not necessarily the people who are electable. So that's, that's another problem we have to deal with, right? Um, you know, in the Philippines, 
um, elected officials are promoting this so-called cure to COVID-19 called ivermectin, and the credulous boomers um, <laughs> believe these charlatans, right? Um, and that and, and that goes to show, you know, these people are democratically elected. They have a right to say what they need to say, but at the same time, it would be favorable to actually restrict democracy in that in that very narrow and limited sense in favor of listening to the experts. But the problem is a lot of the experts are unelected. So what do you do there? You care about democracy, but you care about expertise as well. There are no cut and dry solutions here, and these are the tensions that liberals are going to have to negotiate as we as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, definitely. And you can see that, for example, you know um, how Victor Urban. Um, are kind of attacked those institutions that they uh, can easily label as elitist and say don't serve the people and in that way turning the country to autocracy uh, and becoming strongmen so definitely like the insti- like attacking the universities the elites and the experts and uh, all of this so yeah and, you know of course that interacts with older versions of say anti-semitism because when you attack like the global liberal elite you say they're funded by jews like george soros right so it's a, there's a, there's an anti-semitic streak there as well mm-hmm. no definitely i yeah I, I definitely think that and i think like attacking minority rights also comes hand in hand with this easy solution type of thing uh, and and along with that comes also this um uh, so uh, i'm going to move to um i the next kind of um thing which is more looking at um us as uh, youth organizations, Cal, this youth organization, if it's a youth organization, uh, and kind of what are your viewpoints of what the youth in particular uh, could do to kind of help end the cycle of populists and dictators in, in, in all over the world, but also especially Asia, uh, especially uh, since we are this new generations of me, like Gen C, millennials coming up, um, which kind of worry a lot of people how we're gonna uh, as we're growing up with this how this gonna affect us what are your thoughts on kind of how the youth can interact with this reality that we're living in and and help to end it i don't think uh, millennials can still be classified as youth anyway because <laughs> i'm a millennial myself and i have to deal with the fact that i shouldn't be calling myself young anymore um i think one thing I don't, I'm not sure if this is a solution, but I think one thing is to think comparatively and to think about what's happening in other places in the world um, because it allows you to come up with um, not just points for comparison, but points for improvement. Um, and you see this, for example, in the phenomenon of the, the kind of milk tea alliance in Asia, right? So, you know, pro-democracy, um, activists in Thailand, pro-democracy activists in Myanmar, for example, they view themselves as uh, kind of multi. Are you familiar with the multi alliance? So the kind of multi alliances, these Asian anti-authoritarian movements, and they call themselves the multi alliance as a kind of jab against China because China drinks its tea without milk. So by, by drinking your milk, your tea with milk, you're essentially saying that you're not just anti-authoritarian, you're also anti-China. So it's happening in Taiwan. It's happening in Hong Kong. It's happening in uh, Myanmar, right? Um, and that kind of comparative regional approach, I think, is very useful because it not you, you're not just able to ensure that you learn the right lessons. 
you also start feeling that there are people who are on your side around the world. And I think that allows people to keep going. Um, the thing that you're really fighting against here is disillusionment and a certain sense of nihilism. And whenever you think about the rest of the world um, and you think about other people who are fighting the good fight, that, that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think this is something we all need to take into account and, and in, in our continued fight um, against this. Um, and uh, with that being said, I really want to thank you for thank you. Um, being with us with this um, episode. I think it was very interesting to hear your thoughts. And uh, I think uh, I, a lot of us learned a lot and a lot of liberals can take a lot from this in, in, in their continued work. So thank you so much for for being with us and coming here. Thank you very much, Amanda. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was my pleasure as well. Thank you for listening. Good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, whatever you are. Uh, thank you for listening to The Youth Perspective. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by Cal Youth and IFRI. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Leloy uh, Claudio, for being with us. Uh, and uh, thank you for, for listening to this podcast. <laughs>